Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I know it's Thanksgiving week in the United States, so I hope everyone has a wonderful time reconnecting with their family and their friends. I know this time can often turn into a stressful time, but hopefully the stress is minimized and the reconnection and the relaxation is maximized. No travel this week, so it's working from home before going to visit some friends next weekend. So it'll be nice to be off the road for a little bit. A reminder that next week is the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That'll be December 1st and 2nd. There's a link in the show notes for that, and there is still time to register. So if you're interested in that event, uh, come join us in Minneapolis. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining for the first time, and a big thank you, of course, to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is Janine Letford. Janine is the author of the book, Seven Gems of Intercultural Creativity. So that is a focus of our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to share with you an idea of how we might be able to personalize semester or final exams. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Janine Ledford is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by reminding you that when it comes to professional learning, you get what you give. The relationships educators have with professional development are sometimes quite interesting, I have to say. As someone who conducts PD multiple times on literally a weekly basis, I see all sorts of reactions to PD. Now, the obvious answer, of course, is that some of those reactions may be to me. I get that. Or they may be the topic, right? Because you go to any high school and you start talking grading reform, And you're bound to get the skepticism and the cynicism and the arm folding and the looking over my reading glasses to project wisdom kinds of reactions. I know that. I get that. I know there are people out there who facilitate more engaging workshops than me, and I know I do it better than others. I'm somewhere in the middle because I think most of us lie somewhere in the middle, right? There's always someone doing it better, always someone doing it worse. So some of the reactions I see, of course, could be me, the topic, or maybe both. I'm totally comfortable with the idea that I'm not everyone's favorite, and I totally get that. I just don't want you thinking that what I'm about to say is some personal vent against something that happened to me acutely, because it's not. It's just an observation I've made over the course of my career, especially as a full-time speaker and a consultant for the past 12 years, but even many more years prior to that when I was still employed by a school district. Now, many, and I would probably say the vast majority of educators see professional development as an opportunity to dig deeper, to hone their skills, to learn something new, to be reflective, and to drive themselves toward excellence. I'd I'd say that's probably the majority of educators. But some, some look at PD as a bit of downtime. As in, listen, Tom, don't, don't get too heavy on me here, as I'm taking a bit of a mental break from the grueling nature of the job. And I get that. Look, the job can be grueling at times. I totally get that. But maybe that's not the greatest mindset to go into PD with, right? Now, still others, they'll sit back and want to be entertained, which is, I guess, kind of ironic because of how many educators I've heard over the years express their frustration over the fact that their students seem to check out the minute they're not being entertained. It's actually quite stunning to me at times how a few educators, and again, I'm not saying most, I'm not even saying many, so don't get it twisted here, how a few educators almost seem to mimic the behaviors they lament from their students when they're in a PD session. It's very interesting and quite ironic the way they act. And still, there are others who look at PD as a kind of checklist of topics to cover over the course of their careers, right? So they'll say things like, oh, assessment again? Didn't we do assessment last year? It's so funny to me how at times, you know, we can listen to the same song from our teenage years and gloriously sing along to the lyrics over and over again, but God forbid you hear the same thing in a PD session twice. <laughs> when you facilitate as many workshops as I do, you, you kind of see it all, and it's so interesting. But here's the thing. When it comes to PD, you'll only get out of it what you put into it, full stop. No matter what it is, the educators who get the most out of PD are the ones who put the most into it. They invest in the thinking. They invest in the reflecting, the hypothesizing, the contemplating, the imagining. They invest in trying to make meaning and to see how the ideas are being presented in a way that they can align that with their current practice, but also maybe add something new that moves them forward professionally. Even when the PD might uh, 
be more of a refresher, they come into it with a refinement slash enhancement kind of mindset. Look, I know as a facilitator, it's my job to make the session thought-provoking and interesting and engaging. I never really plan PD to be on the extremes, like the one extreme being edutainment, where I'm just simply trying to make it about me, make everybody laugh, tell everybody what they want to hear, so everybody loves me. That's not really my style. Nor is it my style to be sort of the the shock jock or add the shock value or try to be intentionally over-the-top provocative. Look, I'm, there's probably people who see me in both of those lights anyway, but you know that's not my intent when I when I plan PD. I'll often say to participants in workshops, don't do anything because I said so and don't not do anything because I said so. Don't make me the issue. Think about the idea. In professional development, we have to be able to separate the presenter from the information. A good idea is a good idea, whether it's presented with charisma and charm or not. Look, I do understand that there comes a point where you can't understand the new ideas because my presentation was a mess. That's fair. I get that. But at the same time, as professionals, we have to be able to sort through some of that and reflect on whether a practice could be an enhancement to our classrooms. Now, I'm sure at this point, all of the whataboutisms are kind of flowing through your head. They're never ending, right? What about the presenter who offends Tom, whether it was intentional or inadvertently? What about the presenter who is incredibly disorganized or, or rude or whatever? I, look, I know you can probably think of 100 scenarios. But again, when it comes to PD, you get what you give. Being actively involved in a professional development session is the only way you're going to get anything out of it. Not every PD session is going to be epic. But if we go into the professional development experience with a reflective mindset where we take in all of the experience and continue to reflect on how we can continue to learn something new and or refine our practices, I think we can benefit from almost any PD experience. If you want PD to be meaningful and impactful, if you want it to be a meaningful and impactful experience, then I think we need to go into it with that mindset. Rather than starting with the negative, like, it all wait until the presenter catches my attention or convinces me, maybe go into PD with the opposite mindset. Like, this is going to, in some small, medium, or large way, make me a more effective teacher. The one thing about being a facilitator is that you're kind of forced to keep learning because new research emerges and the ideas are ever-evolving. I just can't imagine spending my entire career being so skeptical about every PD session. And I know, again, listen, I know you can always cite the one session that was a train wreck or where there truly was nothing to learn or there was no organization, it had no focus, etc. I get that. As facilitators and leaders of professional development, we are definitely responsible for bringing our best to each session. We have a tremendous responsibility to create a thoughtful experience for participants, but it takes two. So while presenters have that responsibility, I think as participants, we also have to take responsibility for ourselves. We have, to, we have to be responsible to our profession. And most importantly, we have to be responsible to our students. To enter any professional learning experience with a level of openness and optimism and curiosity that has us actively seeking a meaningful and reflective experience. When it comes to professional learning, never forget, you get what you give. Joining me this week is Janine Letford. Janine is an award-winning educator, best-selling author, and international speaker on the intercultural creativity and the neurosomatic creativity. As a TEDx speaker and top neurocreativity trainer, she's inspired many educators to be aware of their brain's influences on their cultural lenses their creative and their creative abilities to produce innovative ideas for their classrooms and for their workspaces. She is the founder and chief creative officer of Cafe Strategies, which trains administrators, educators, and employees to unleash their intercultural creativity for themselves and in their classroom. Janine is also the author of the book, Seven Gems of Intercultural Creativity, and that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. So Janine, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Um, I, I have to say I love the book. Uh, really enjoyed it and and really got me thinking about a number of things. And I can't wait to sort of get into it and dig into it. But before we do that, Janine, could you just, you know, I gave people some of the highlights of where you are now in your career, but you, could you talk a little bit about your journey 
uh, the rundown of your career. Where did you begin and what led you uh, to be where you are today? Yes, I am an educator by heart, by trade. I taught 15 years in, at K-5 ele elementary ed, and I ran a nonprofit for 6th grade through 12th grade, and I also taught at the university level for teachers getting their master's, and I've done some work, board work with DonorShoes.org, so I got a really interesting perspective of the entire pipeline from four years old all the way to like 64 years old, and that's what really projected me into the work that I'm doing now. I left the classroom about 2019, about six months before the pandemic hit, not knowing what was around the corner. But um, just on this journey and this, um, this advocacy for creative thinking and making sure that our students, but also our adults who are still in the workforce, um, have an, a, a position to think creatively. What does that look on the cognitive level, the neuroscience level, and the, the cultural connection level? But and that, but when I saw that there was a huge influence on creative thinking from the cultural just powers around, right, the invisible powers that be, that's when I really looked into the research of something that I'm naming called intercultural creativity, and that's the work that you see today. Yeah, fantastic. I, I like I said, I I, I love the book, um, and you mentioned early on in the book that. Um, yeah, I can't imagine leaving your job and, and quitting your job and starting something new in 2019. That must have been, uh, <laughs> who knew, what we, we, we all didn't know what was uh, around the corner uh, at that time. So it must have been a stressful time for you, for sure. So early on in the book, um, you said that you talk about while you were researching diversity and inclusion, you realized that the cognitive skills needed to develop intercultural competence were the exact same skills that are needed for creative thinking. And, and so that's how intercultural creativity came about. So what are those skills? And tell us a little bit about sort of that, the research that you saw that brought alignment between that intercultural sort of creativity and how that all, the cultural competence, I should say, and creativity, how did it all come together for you? Sure. Well, everything is rooted in the brain and our perception of, of our identity, right? How we see ourselves, how we interact with the world around us socially. Our, our brains are, are social. And yes, I do have a brain with me. I carry it around, around me um, because it's a powerful organ, right? And you, you definitely need, need one to, to, uh, to, to live. And just so once I saw that once we understood what creative thinking really was, it was more than just artistry. Artistry is very important, but that ability to think of new ideas, to make unusual associations, to reframe situations and, and people and, and processes, uh, to have metaphorical thinkers, right? High, highly creative thinkers are thinking metaphor a lot to make those, those bridges and your ability to use your imagination. And so once I was really getting deep into that and then you know, just being aware of, of the cultural influences, I'm like, wait, they're the same thing. To be culturally aware and culturally com com competent, you you have to be aware of your mindset, be aware of any um, hidden spots that are around, be aware of who you've been exposed to, especially during your formative years. You have to have empathy, which is um, for both of them, which is the, the second gem. The third one, observation, right? In order to be highly creative, you have to be observant, but in order to have cultural awareness, you have to be observant on with all your sensors, senses, including your intuition and um, just, you know, your ability to see beyond the surface, right? Um, and, and that's a skill that you can improve. The next one, the next gem is cultural curiosity. If they say if creativity is a driver of innovation, curiosity is a driver of creativity. But you know, to be culturally aware, you have to be curious. You know, you have to want to seek out people's different lived experiences to see how other people are experiencing the same thing that you are from a different vantage point. The next one is perspective shifting uh, based off the work of Dr. Michael Platt out of the Wharton um, Neuroscientist, um, Neuroscience Initiative. We looked at perspective shifting creatively, your ability to shift around a perspective using your imagination, right? But to be culturally competent, to be can be able to connect with people from different lived experiences, you have to shift perspective, right? And, and you use your imagination in order to do that as well. And then we have authentic ad adaptation and then uh, being a bridge, being that boundary spanner, being that, that person that can navigate through different cultures and different, um, different social groups with ease. They're able to adjust and adapt when need, need be. 
it's it's such an it's such a fascinating concept that I think you know certainly eluded me. I would have never connected the dots between cultural competence and creativity, but yet as you laid it out um, just now, but also in the book, you lay it out so so clearly that these these ways of thinking, these mindsets, these dispositions really do align and overlap in such a significant way that allows us to to see things from a different perspective, for example, or to empathize with, with others and really come to a, a real understanding. So let's let's dig in a little bit to some of the topics. One of the things that caught my attention, of course, in the book as well, is that you said creativity is a choice. Now, I think a lot of people out there are probably going to push back on that and say, uh, Janine, I've got evidence to the contrary. Uh, I'm not very creative at all. They might they might <laughs> assert that. And, you, and I think that students in schools are actually very susceptible to that. Uh, that mindset, because being creative, especially in a school setting as an adolescent or a child, you put yourself in a vulnerable position, you know, one way or the other. So I also think a lot of teachers don't think they're creative in, in the sense of what they do. I, I, I don't agree with them, but the whole notion that creativity is a choice, I think, is foreign to a lot of people. So how can we get ourselves and our students out of that mindset and really that limiting belief and really choose to be creative? How can we turn that around and see that creativity is truly a choice. Such a powerful concept, and we can do the whole podcast just on this question alone. But <laughs> we first have to define well, right? You know, language is powerful. Um, words are, are powerful. So that's once I re redefine creativity more than just artistry. So a lot of people think they're not creative because they can't sing like Whitney Houston or dance like Justin Timberlake. So they're saying this out loud. And whatever you say out loud, especially over and over again, your subconscious is re is recording, and when life needs you to be creative, like what the pandemic put us in, where we had to think of new ways of, of processing information and operating. If you've been saying to yourself, I'm not creative, guess what's going to ha happen You know, with your brain? Your brain's like, okay, well, we can't do anything because we're not creative. And so re-shifting re that. We also want to look at the fact that we have actually researched that children come to us, right? 98.8% at high creative genius thinking love levels, right? And and once they leave 12th grade, and definitely by the time they, they in, enter uh, their 30s, only 2% of the population has held on to that creative thinking genius level ability. So we have to ask yourself why. And so understanding what may be stripping the creative juices and processes from our children without us even you know really knowing it is key so are we allowing for divergent thinking or does everyone need to converge to one answer in order to be rewarded you know do we allow for um imagination time Some, something that dr michael platt calls uh, uh your innovation you know network right and something called the default mode network you know you turn it on when you're not really doing anything we call it day day daydreaming so you know now if you see someone daydreaming I do I do this with my son I just give him time because he's thinking creatively in his mind as he's staring off in, in the window so the brain is actually working hard during that daydreaming time even though we think they're not engaged and so building classrooms that understand what creative thinking actually looks like and then and then shaping the curriculum around that is, is key but understanding what it looks like is the first first step so what people can do is allow time for thinking, allow time for, for breaks, understand that the brain needs breaks. Uh, I believe that's coming more into our curriculum now um, as we have more of a neural awareness of what's going on in, in our students' brains. Another thing is something that Dr. David Eagleman calls bending, breaking, and blending, right? And the creative route is along those, those lines. So are we allowing the kids to kind of take the, the curriculum or take the content and bend it in a cool way, do some something weird with it or, or break it in a cool way, um, you know, just move different parts of the content or reassemble things in a cool way to answer the problems that their their life is being presented with. A lot of times we have them go through the content, memorize it, and then regurgitate it on, on a test. But I'm asking education to have a part of the unit be, okay, here's what we learn. Now, how can you take this information and create something that's going to move, um, you know, your, your problems or society's problems or something that you see that there's a need to, an to answer forward? That's that creative aspect of bending, breaking, and blending the curriculum in a useful way for the child. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the 
emphasis on creative thinking. It, you know, 15 years ago, I remember my school jurisdiction was talking about 21st century skills and, you know, the idea of critical thinking, creativity. And, and the immediate question from so many teachers was, um, well, was how do I assess creativity? Um, and, and, the, and it came down to the fact that they viewed creativity as producing something that was aesthetically pleasing, as opposed to thinking, you know, the creative mindset or, you know, so my colleagues and I uh, talk a lot about the idea of thinking with creative intent and, and, and looking at the process of being creative as opposed to the end result and not judging things to not be creative. So I love the fact that there's an emphasis that you align with that. And I think, you know, it goes back to Howard Gardner and others, five minds of the future and how we have to learn and train ourselves. The choice to think outside of our habitual ways of thinking uh, can really help us move in that direction. What are some ways that you think um, some, are there some ways that teachers can start? We know there's a lot to do with that, but I'm thinking about what's one way if a teacher right now is thinking to themselves, I'd like to, my kids seem to be stuck in a rut in terms of the way they think. What are some simple ways? Maybe, I know it's not simple, but are there some simple ways you can get kids outside of that habitual sort of stuck in a rut way of thinking? What are some thoughts on that? Sure. There's, there's two, two things that I'll touch on. One is, you know, I write about it in, in the book, my son putting a placemat on his head and like, look, it, it's a hat. Right. So that's called functional agility. At least I'm calling it functional agility. The term that's already out there in the, the research is something called functional fixedness. And adults have functional fixedness where, um, fixedness, where I see a pen and my brain says, this is a pen. I use it to write down work, you know, but my son who's four says, this is a drumstick. This is a baton. This is a projectile. You know, he, he has 10 different uses for this where I'll look at it, quickly recognize it as a pen and go on about my business. And so really elevating the functional agility within my my classroom throughout the day and it's it could be a quick activity it can be you know like find find an object what would you use it for that's not its original use so that's functional agil agility and allowing them to do that um periodically is exercises you know um i'm, I'm an i was an at athlete, track and field athlete, and we do exercises before we get on actual track to run in the actual race, you know, like in football, basketball. And so these are exercises that your students can do before they're, you know, in a boardroom and need to think creatively. They've had a whole life of practicing functional agil agility. And in, in the book, I talk about the functional agility of, of people. You know, um, in the workforce, sometimes we look at people only at their job description. Oh, that's Sally, and she's the accountant where Sally is, you know, a, a closet chef, you know, she can make all these meals in the bay and she's a karaoke singer, but we only see her as the accountant. So we've lost all these other underlying, un underlying gifts. And so are we doing that in our classroom? Are we not allowing all these other functions that our students have to come to light and to be a part of the learning process? Yeah, creativity is a choice. Creativity is also something that we have to practice and continue to push ourselves to think outside of those habits that we've established. Um, you also talked in the book about, and I, I feel like I'm just going through some of the big ideas of, of the book, but I think it was, you know, it sparked a lot of thinking for me. You talk about the importance of being culturally curious, about being curious to learn about the experiences, the lived experiences of others. So I want you to correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I had a thought as, as I was reading the book. Would I be right to say that, you know, when you think about something like cultural awareness, that's more passive. That's me just being aware of, of mm -hmm. cultures while being culturally curious would make me would have me be more active in seeking out an understanding uh, of, of cultures that I'm actively seeking to learn the experiences mm -hmm. of others through the lens of their cultural experience. So how do we do that? How, how do we and, and I guess there comes a point where our curiosity can become annoying or um, <laughs> inadvertently offensive. You know, we, we don't want to um, cross that line. So how, how, how do we, how do we do that? How do we, how, what are some simple ways that we can show that, you know, build that curiosity within ourselves? And then how does that link to creativity? So the idea of being culturally curious, is it the idea of curiosity that links to creativity? So talk, talk us through some of that. Yes, there's a lot, lot there. So you are right about um, being 
mindful, right? Um, and, yeah. and being sense sensitive, because, you know, there are, you know, situations where, you know, maybe one person um, of this identification is the only, only person in the group, and, you know, they'll be curious, and everyone's asking them tons of questions, you know, right. so there's other av avenues. Now, if you have a, a close enough relationship with, with that person, then you, you can make that ju judgment call. But, it's really going back to our ability to self-teach and self-learn and understanding where other sources of information are. And so, you know, I just spoke with um, a rep representative at CAAA, which is the um, Creative Artist Agency, and they have a town hall about some of the anti-Semitism and, um, and racism uh, issues going on right now. But when they do their town hall, they have a whole list of resources for people to go watch TED Talks people to go read books, people to go um, check out articles, uh, people to go look at interviews from people sharing their lived experiences. So you don't all have to go to this one person at your job who has that identification. Um, and, and, you know, we shouldn't unless you have that level of relationship with, with, with that person. But I believe that's a skill that every child needs, right? Knowing how, knowing that the teacher is not the one source of information. And that's what I'm trying to teach my, my four-year-old son is, is you, I'm trying to give him a, an action plan, you know, um, and if you have a question, there's multiple ways to, to gather information around that. And that's a very empowering thing, especially in this era where learning, the one who stays learning through it all, it will be the one on top. And another thing that I do that we actually have, have research on is travel. Travel, as you can tell, big part of people who travel, especially during their formative years, yeah. the formative years are so critical because the algorithms of the brain are being structured during that time that will be run for the rest of the, the life, unless there's some big interventions going on. And so, you know, just my, my mother was big on that. I, in, in the book, I, I dedicate um, uh, the book, my first book to her, I was like, she's a true creator of intercultural creativity because she knew how to create a home, a culture that supported us traveling, us, us reaching out to different um, lived experiences, different cultures and ethnicities and locations, right? You can have people who live in the South and live in the North, a whole different type, type of way of living, right? Um, and, then, and then I took it further and traveled and I studied in Costa Rica and uh, Spain and went to Europe, you know, and so that you really know about your systems and your cultures when you leave the system and your cultures you go into another culture and i believe that everyone should have that opportunity to to do so yeah if you can travel certainly uh listeners know that i just returned from from work over in vienna and uh, was my first international trip since uh, february of 2020 and uh, just, you know, again, what you, you're so right about what it does in terms of how it stimulates the brain and, and uh, you know, just different ways of living. You see different people, different walks of life, different sort of norms that are established. And it starts to you, you start to gain an appreciation for for how different things can be. And certainly, you know, we have to it has to be acknowledged that not everybody has the good fortune to be able to travel. But I think your point is well taken that if you have the opportunity to travel, uh, it's something to take advantage of for sure because of that awareness. So and I can see the balance. I think your point is well taken that our curiosity has to lead us to seeking out information. And yet learning about a culture doesn't necessarily mean no one within a culture is a monolith. And, and so therefore, understanding individual or small groups of people, their lived experience also is supplemented, supplements our own learning uh, and the things that, that we understand. But that curiosity to me is what drives creativity. And, it, and, and it's something that I, I could see that overlap for sure. The other uh, chapter seven, uh, this one uh, really aligns with so much of my thinking, our thinking, uh, my colleagues on authentic adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, that really spoke to me because the idea of adaptability, when my colleagues, Cassandra, Nicole, and I, we wrote a book called Growing Tomorrow Citizens in Today's Classroom. It's all about teaching and assessing uh, seven critical competencies for the, for the 21st century. And one of the things that we argue in the book, and it's not our, we don't originate this argument, but one of the things that we sort of support is this idea that the development of these competencies, including creativity, are what make you adaptable. Because the rate of change, and, and you mentioned it as well, and Thomas Friedman mentioned it in his book, uh, Thank You for Being Late, the idea that 
human adaptability for the first time in history is being outpaced by advances in technology, and mm -hmm. we're just struggling to catch up. And so this idea of being adaptable is what's going to help me be successful as an adult going forward. So, you know, thinking critically, collaboratively, and creatively. So I absolutely loved that. So what I want to ask you is, in terms of, you know, intercultural creativity, the intercultural part, can you connect that to the authentic adaptation? Why is that so important from that that cultural perspective as well as the creative perspective? Sure. Well, to, um, well the reason why I say authentic is because you have to know your core right. values. And so we have, we have different demographics within us, you know, um, and psychographics. Mm -hmm. And so our intercultural creativity internally is something that people need to journey through, do their self-awareness. So there's that aspect. But also um, understanding that your ability to to perspective shift that's why adaptation is number number six because it sits on all the other gems right be observant right, right. be em em empathetic i believe that's going to be so key because number one the world is more connected now right and and especially after COVID, you can be working from anywhere any place and your ability to adapt in in either crisis adaptation or cultural um ad adaption is is so important and it rests on the intercultural part because the intercultural part is the adaptation part because i can find myself in different types of cultures within our hours right and so number one not to lose your north star and that's why i have the authentic part you know to know what what your your values are and you know there's certain lines that i i won't cross but even ethnically um when I go travel into different you know nations, I'm observant to how they're doing. I'm observant to power um, to power layouts, right? I'm, I'm observant. Like we we went to Japan and we're like, there's no trash cans around here, but everything was neat. And then I was looking out the window and it's like everyone was in white shirts and dark pants. I was like, that's interesting. Maybe one person would come out with a pink shirt, but everyone was in light shirts and dark pants. And it was just like just my ob observation of, of things. And, you, you know, in Japan, pe pe people bow to, to, to greet one another. And, um, and I, I started doing the things too, because, you know, that's what I felt comfortable doing and that I was in their, their culture and I, I wanted to, to connect as well. And so just being observant and mindful about the different like you said, the different norms that you're going in and, and, and out is just a, an important key. And it adds to my creativity because it forces me to shift frames, right? And frames are big things. Frames are like your, your schemas, like what you expect to happen in a certain situation, like walking in an in, in elevator. Normally people don't face the wall, they turn around and face the door, right? But if someone did jumping jacks in the elevator, that would be odd to you because it's out of your frame of what happens in an elevator. So when I'm I'm adapting in different so, social and cultural situations, my frames are automatically being shifted. So it's forcing me to think even more creatively because I don't have set frames in, in these typical right. um, scenarios. As you were responding there, you, you, you made me think of the concept of code switching. And mm. I wanna ask just from your perspective, um, is there a difference? And if so, what is the difference between being adaptable Mm -hmm. and the concept of code, because I think code switching is often seen as a negative, or at least it's cast mm -hmm. as a negative. Yeah. So how, how do you make the distinction between those two? Yes, and then that's a long conversation as well. People have their, their different um, positions on, right. on it. Um, yeah. I've, I've dealt with it, and my mother and, and people in my family just going in and out of cultures, and right. and I, I do appreciate the, the question. I do differentiate them. Um, and that's why, once again, I put authentic adaptation. And right. so in my, in my um, examples, I use the fact that I teach elementary school. I teach very young children, but you know, now I'm in corporate and I teach adults in C-suite and people who lead multi-million dollar companies. And I teach in the education and the academia and I'm in the beauty industry. How I ended up in the beauty industry, I have no clue. And then, you know, you saw me do a keynote in ed education. So yeah. My ability to authentically adapt is key. Now, when I'm with CEOs, guess what? I still have Legos and Play-Doh. That's authentically me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, and I felt like, oh, do I have to stand there and, and lecture for two hours? That's not me, you know, because I would never do do that with my, my kindergartners. But 
I understand who's in front front of me. I understand who's who I'm around and I understand what's the way that I could connect with them. It's gonna be different in an in a elementary classroom than in the boardroom at a large non nonprofit, but I'm still authentically me. And so when I think of code switch switching, like, and some people have different positions, you know, some people, um, I think of people ashamed to be authentically them. So they feel that they have to be someone else and speak exactly like some, someone else. And so that's how I can construe that. Uh, but when I talk about authentic adaptation, it's being mindful of who you're communicating with and understanding that some um, connection pieces might have to, to adapt in order to make that connection, in order to make those bridges work. That, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I, I think I sort of thought that way, but but I love the way you articulated that, that code switching is about losing yourself, really. Mm -hmm. You you lose the essence of who you are, whereas the, uh, the adaptation is I'm still me, but I can adapt. As you talked about with Japan, something as simple as how you greet somebody. Or mm -hmm. I remember going to Japan, you know, years ago and being taught how to present a business card. Uh, you know, there's different idiosyncrasies within every culture that you have to adapt to out of respect. And yet, you know, you don't want to lose the essence of who you are for sure. Now, in chapter eight, you talk about bridging across cultures. And this one, this, I felt like I was reading. You about read the book. I'm so happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Hey. I gotta know. I gotta know what I'm talking about here when I ask you the questions. Here's what I loved. You get a sticker. Yeah, I'll take the sticker. Yeah, um, listeners will, will with my work in grading. Listeners will see the irony in me accepting a sticker. <laughs> but here's here's my as I'm reading your story about high school, um, and you talked about how you were a self-described floater. Um, I felt like I was reading my story around high school as well, because I mean, I was an athlete in school and of course I, but I wasn't that sort of stereotypical jock. I was kind of, I was an athlete, but I felt like I had connections in all of these different groups. So as I'm reading about your story, about how you were able to sort of bridge between all the different groups, drama and, and, and the athletes and the cool kids. I think your sister, your twin sister was a, one of the cool kids, right? And yeah. you weren't yeah. part of that. Yeah. So I, I felt like I, I'm like, this is my high school experience okay. as I'm reading it. So, <laughs> which I loved it. So, but here's what, here's what, what you wrote. And here's what I want to zero in on is this idea of boundary writers. So you, you wrote in the book, quote, people who are people who are bridges tend to be boundary writers. So first I want to ask you, what does it mean to be a boundary writer? And second, again, how does bridging across culture, bridging across cultures relate to creativity? Yes. Yes. So I, in my first book, I adapted my educational book um, to that. So I was like, you know what? I think I need to write more about boundary writing in the educational book. So I, I may add an extra par paragraph in there uh, for the second edition. Right. But to me, um, you know, um, Kurt Vonnegut, Vonnegut, um, I, I forgot his, the way he says his last name, but anyway, he's um, brilliant. He's an artist, but he says, you know, you can't really see too much in the center. You got to get to the, ed the, the edges. Okay. And we looked at some research about, you know, Japan um, uh, a, few, a few thousand years ago, you know, ancient Japan, and they looked at the creativity spikes within Japan. It was easy to look at Japan because it's an island. So if they wanted to close their borders, they easily could. And when they were un under rulership of people who closed their borders, their creativity flatlined. But when they were under rulership of when they opened their borders to to other, you know, nations and just to tra travelers passing by, their creativity spiked because creativity happens at the intersection of fields and disciplines and cultures, which is the, um, coming from the book, The Medici Effect by Franz jo Johan Hansen. And so it is true. So if you're a boundary writer, you know, if you're able to, um, to make those bridges and, and to see what's going on in other cultural groups, or let's say um, in other grade, grade le levels, in my school, I even, you know, switched classrooms with a fellow teacher from a different grade for a day or two just to see okay well what is it like being at this level and what are what are the kids experiencing so when they get to me I taught third grade they they taught second I, I have more of an idea of where they're coming from you know or where they're going and so that's a school example but you know in the business world it's like you're in operations do you have any clues going on in, in, in accounting and if you did you know what connections could you make because something that you see can help your job be 10 times better or something more efficient because you made that connection or you saw something else in the pipeline. And so I don't think we 
give people a chance to almost um, sam sample, right? There's a great TED talk, I, I forgot got his name, but he talked about kids who have a good sampling period in their youth. They're not just focusing on one, like you're gonna be a tennis player, you're gonna start tennis at two and continue tennis to the rest of your life. You know, it's just like, ah, do tennis, do karate, do music, you do all this sample stuff. Um, before you specialize, because the brain really needs, I, I call it the building a complex brain, right? Complexifying the brain. And a complex brain is a brain that is able to make those connections across fields, disciplines, and cultures. And the arts, I'm a huge advocate for the arts. That's one way to complexify your brain and to be a good boundary observer and to look for, for, for patterns, right? Patterns and connections that no one else sees. It is a, uh, a fascinating concept, Janine. Uh, listeners, again, the book is called Seven Gems of Intercultural Creativity. I, I highly recommend it in terms of the connection um, that I had never made before in terms of the, the, skill, the cognitive skills required to be creative, to think creatively, but also to build those cultural bridges as well and to, and, and to connect uh, together. So uh, can't recommend it enough. Two questions as we finish up today, Janine. Uh, these are questions I ask all uh, guests when they come on the podcast. The first one, you can take it in any direction you want to, but it's about education. And the question is simply this, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? That our children and our adults could be going through life or ending, finishing their, their, their life in late, late adulthood without realizing their fullest creative potential. Mm. I'm going to continue doing my work so um, they get the notion, the idea, the spark, right, um, as early as poss possible and to educate parents to, to enliven that spark in their children. Yeah, and, and do everything we can not to slowly suck the creativity out of our kids as they go through the school system. You mentioned that earlier as well. I love that. Uh, a great goal. Creativity is a choice, but we have to continue to help people see that it is a choice available to them. So uh, you are doing all of that uh, in the work you're doing. So uh, keep, keep at it, Janine, for sure. Last question as we finish up is... Um, it's a bit of a lighter question. I fashion myself as a bit of a foodie. I love food. You live in Buckeye, Arizona, which you said I think is about 30 minutes outside of Phoenix. Yes. So simple question. Where's the best place to eat in Buckeye, Arizona? I would say Culver's. I've never experienced Culver's um, until I came to Buckeye. But uh, okay. they have a, a butter burger. <laughs> <laughs> May not be the healthiest choice, but hey, if you're going to have one cheat, might as well be a butter burger burger from Culver's. <laughs> well, I did not ask you for a healthy choice. I okay. asked you for the best thing to eat. So, okay. Tell us a little bit more about the, the butter burger. That just sounds epic. Yeah. It's a burger with butter. <laughs> it's just like on the bun. <laughs> okay. All right. No, well, yeah, don't have, have one to read. Re no, yeah, that's right. Just to Which experience is a creative act. Food. Food is, can be a creative act as well. So. <laughs> Absolutely can, for sure. Uh, listeners, you can and you should follow uh, Janine. Uh, the handles on Twitter and Instagram are at Janine Letford. Uh, Janine is also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And of course, I'll have links in the show notes for uh, all of those uh, social media platforms. Uh, the website is www.cafestrategies.com. And uh, Janine, we didn't talk about the podcast, the Cafe Strategies podcast. Do you want to give a little plug for that and tell listeners how they can, what, what's, what's the podcast about and, and where can they find it? I'm assuming it's on all the platforms, but tell us a little bit about the podcast. Sure. And it's on my platform, uh, C-A-F-F-E strategies.com, but it's called yeah. Create and Grow, Form, formerly Create and Grow, Grow, grow Rich, oh, but, okay. but Create and Grow. And we just have guests on showing what creativity looks like in different fields. We have a lot of neuroscientists on, so Dr. Michael Platt over at the Wharton Business School mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, Dr. Um, Al Allison Hoismeister from USC, who's a doctorate of curiosity. And so we just have some great perspectives of looking at creativity in all fields and in all levels of life. Okay. So create and grow is the podcast and uh, listeners, you should check that out for sure. Uh, Janine really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, fascinating uh, conversation, fascinating concept. Um, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me and go shine bright and be creative.
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to share with you an idea I shared with a couple of high school subject-based teams this past week about how we might be able to personalize semester exams or final exams. Now let me get a few things out of the way first, okay? One, this is not an endorsement of exams, okay? This is a response to a school that has them, and we were contemplating what could be done to sort of reimagine them. Two, we did not go down the road of a logistical overhaul, you know, create three-hour periods of time, change the schedule, create a different rotation. This was all about working within the system they had established. And three, the school has one-hour-long periods for their semester exams, and we worked within that constraint. Okay, I'm saying all of this because while I'm sharing the idea, some of you may start to think, well, why do we need exams in the first place? And we need, you know, I get that. And, and all that goes along with reimagining what the so-called final exam is all about. Okay, so I totally understand that. But I want to sort of share the idea of trying to work with the school instead of constantly arguing with them or contemplating on the edges, if you will. That's easy to do on social media. But when you're working with a school and they're at a certain place, you have to meet them where they are and begin to help them think differently about their current constructs. Maybe down the road, they'll reimagine their exams altogether, but we're working within that constraint. Okay, so here's the nature of the conversation. Given the one-hour time block, we all agreed that covering the entire semester in one hour would be nearly impossible, if not completely impossible. Even with an onslaught of multiple-choice questions, there's no way that you can get through an entire course, you know, cover one semester in one hour. So I proposed an idea to them that could be a way to personalize the exam experience. And I wanted to share it with you because I actually think it has some potential. So here goes. Let's imagine, and we're gonna deal with a hypothetical, okay? Let's imagine that your class has 10 high priority standards or say eight strands or however you might organize the learning or how your standards are organized, okay? So, but let's just go with the idea of having 10 high priority standards. You get toward the end of the semester and two weeks before the exam period, each student, in consultation with their teacher, chooses the two high-priority standards that they need the most attention with, right? These are the ones with maybe the lowest grades or the poorest results or whatever. Now, why two? Two, because they have an hour. We hypothesize that in 30 minutes, teachers could create two to four sophisticated questions or substantive prompts where students would have to give some, you know, substantive answers in terms of how they present their demonstrations of learning. We're not going down the road of multiple choice. We're not doing the multiple choice thing here, okay? These are substantive questions that elicit potentially sophisticated evidence of learning. And I also thought the that, you know, the two to four questions could be created in advance. So imagine we have two to four prompts. Again, depending on how sophisticated there are, it could be three, could be five, but you understand you got a 30-minute time restraint. You got two to four prompts created for the 10 high-priority standards. So one student, let's call her Chelsea, okay? Chelsea examines her results of the semester and thinks to herself, okay, standards six and eight are the ones she needs to improve upon. So Chelsea's exam will be the prompts that have been created for those two high-priority standards. But then there's another student, let's call him Javier. Javier needs to improve on standards one and five. So that's Javier's exam, right? And then there's Alex. Alex needs to improve on standards eight and nine right? That's Alex's exam. So each student would have an exam that was tailored to them, to what they need to improve upon in terms of their learning. Like this is how they're going to be able to improve their grades. And now I know some people are probably thinking right now, but we shouldn't be focusing on grades, Tom. It should be all about the learning. Yep. Got it. Totally get it. But those can be one and the same. I mean, sure. You've heard me say this before. When getting a higher grade is synonymous with doing more learning, then we don't have to keep fighting this fight. I'm trying to live in reality here, okay? I mean, try looking at a high school student and their family right now. Look them in the eye and tell them when they know that grades are the primary mechanism for which they are granted acceptance into college and university, look them in the eye and tell them it's not about your grades, it's about the learning. You're going to lose a lot of credibility with them rather quickly. Now, I'm open to the larger conversation. In fact, I'm a big advocate of changing grading systems and, and all the ways that we report. Totally. Right? But again, I'm trying to deal with the, the now and the acute situation. Right? Instead of 
being so adamant about that. How about just be pro-accurate, meaningful grades, and then that's going to get you a lot of traction with them in the short term. We may have some long-term projects that we can overhaul, love it, all about it, but as far as the short term is concerned, you're going to lose credibility with people if you look them in the eye and say it's not about their grades, especially high school kids that know that's the mechanism for getting into college. Okay, so back to the exams. I asked the teachers, what do you think of that idea? <laughs> what first comes to mind? And the first comment that came to mind was, well, the students couldn't cheat off each other, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Um, I mean, it's a little cynical for me, but and we all had a bit of a laugh there. However, th there might be a little bit of merit to that, right? Because if Chelsea and Javier and, and Alex are all seated beside one another, not one of their exams would be the same. So really, they actually couldn't copy off each other. I think this could be a great way to maybe in the short term rebrand exams instead of here's one more hurdle it's here's one more way to help you since the exam is literally tailored to your needs it's personalized now the two weeks in advance that timeline or one week or whatever you deem appropriate allows then for focused review in class mini lessons tailored to each of the 10 high priority standards and it also allows you to put the exams together within a reasonable time Right, you'd have to consider the logistics of this idea and how it would all be put together. You couldn't put it together the next day. I mean, I guess you could, but you'd, you know, it'd be a lot of work. The prompts need to be created well in advance. That's going to help too. So you'd have them all ready. You'd have them ready to go. They'd be in a bank and you would just sort of piece them together as the students identify their needs. Now, if your exam period were 90 minutes or two hours, then I suppose you could either expand the number of prompts or expand the number of standards. So maybe if it's 90 minutes, you go with three high priority standards. If it's two hours, maybe you go with four high priority standards. There's a lot of different iterations there. Like there was just for me something about the 30 minute chunk of time that seemed to work for you know, mentally. Like I just was getting my head around the idea that you got 30 minutes a topic, couple of couple three really deep questions. But I'd leave that to the teachers to decide. You know that that's not a non-negotiable. That's totally negotiable. Uh, if the exam periods were longer than an hour, you've got many different iterations at your fingertips. There are, of course, other ways to reimagine the entire exam experience, no doubt. But I thought if we could find a way to personalize the exam experience for students, then again, it goes from being a hurdle to becoming a help. It's one more opportunity to help you grow in an area that both you and I, the student and the teacher, recognize could use more strengthening. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the link for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training that's happening next week in Minneapolis. Still time to register for that. Next week, my guest will be Kyle Pierce. Kyle is a high school math teacher from Ontario and the co-host of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. So we get serious about math instruction. Now, full disclosure, I've already recorded this interview with Kyle, and I have to say so much of what we talked about is really applicable to almost any classroom or subject, not just math. So really good conversation to listen to. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a review or a rating on any platform is going to help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.